we have this special thing called sunlight mm -hmm. and soybeans grow very good up here we don't have the same yields that you guys do down in the midwest mm -hmm. but we're closing the gap every year it feels like welcome to extreme ags cutting the curve more than just a podcast it's the place for insights you can apply immediately to your farm operation for increased success this episode of cutting the curve is brought to you by ag explore with innovative products that improve fertilizer efficiency protect yield and reduce stress ag explore helps maximize field potential find out how ag explore can help you get more out of your crop at agexplore.com and now here's your host Damian Mason. Well, greetings and welcome to Cutting the Curve. This episode, we're going to hear from Riley Anderson. Riley is going to give us perspectives on Prairie Province farming. Riley's an affiliate with Extreme Ag. He's going to be doing some trial work for us north of the border. And you know what? We've got tremendous following here at Extreme Ag. We always are giving you cool perspectives, insights, uh, news, and information that you can use on your farming operation. We want to make sure that the people up north of the border feel the love. And that's why we brought in Riley. Riley's uh, a Manitoba farm operator, uh, fifth generation or sixth on his mom's size, I think he just told me. So he's going to tell us a little bit about that. He's going to tell us about what he does, what he, uh, what he sees, uh, problems he addresses that might be unique to uh, being in the Prairie Provinces. He's also going to tell us about the trials he's going to be doing where you can learn from his uh, failures and successes up there. Riley Anderson, thanks for being part of Extreme Ag and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so uh, real quickly, um, you posted a video that just went out. We are recording this in June of 2022. And your first ever video contribution was about a field that had water on it um, for like four to six weeks. And yep. so um, I'm thinking, well, you know what? Matt Miles grows rice. They keep water on their fields for four to six weeks. <laughs> That's supposed to be that way. You don't do that in Manitoba. What the hell happened? So we live in the Red River Valley of the North, I call it. So the Red River goes from north of Winnipeg, Manitoba, down to almost the South Dakota border, south of uh, Breckenridge, Minnesota. And it flows north. That's the thing is that I was just going to say the one problem when they always have flooding up there is because the river flows from the Dakotas up to Manitoba. And back in the 90s, they had like eight feet of snow that winter. And then when the snow started to melt off, it can't go north because it's still frozen up there. So then it just pushes out of the river and floods everything. Is that what happened? Yeah, very similar. So this year, we actually had a very dry we're coming off a drought and um we didn't have too much snow until probably after christmas and then we had record snowfall from january on and the north dakota and northern minnesota also had record snowfalls yeah. um we had a nice easy melt everything was doing good and then we got two snowstorms back to back at the end of March and beginning of April. And then the Dakotas and Minnesota got pounded with rain. So that was the perfect storm to create a flood. Yep. We, like you said, were still frozen as they were sending their water up to us. Yep. And it uh, normally, so we get a flood I would say average every six years, we'll get one that will cover crop and close some roads. 
Um, what made this one different is this is the latest flood we've ever had. So our ground was thawed and we were debating ready to go plant corn. And then the water came up and we were sitting underwater. So normally our ground is frozen and there's sometimes even some snow on the ground when the water comes through. But this time the soil was alive. The ground was, was ready to go when the water came. And that started the problems that we have now. So let's talk about perspectives on Prairie Province farming. And so to our listeners that maybe uh, are very comfortably living in some part of the United States, and they're not as familiar. I, I've worked up there. The Prairie Province is Manitoba, which is above the Dakotas, uh, Saskatchewan, um, which is really kind of above uh, what, Montana. Mon I guess. Montana, yep. Yeah, and then Alberta. Those are your three Prairie Provinces. Uh, very agricultural pretty sparsely populated. I think Manitoba has probably got about a million and a half people in the whole province. Yep. And yep. Uh, Saskatchewan's even less. And then Alberta is the most populous. Um, a lot of agriculture, a lot of big agriculture and people down here in the United States might be like, how do they grow stuff up there? <laughs> well, first off, you're not that far north. Uh, your, far <laughs> your farming operation is about what? 60 miles north of the border? I'm uh, 24 miles north of the border. 24 miles north of the border. And then yeah. um, you do have the unique thing there where you are above the Dakotas. It does get colder than bejesus, right? Yes. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll see minus 40 to minus 56 Fahrenheit with wind chill. <laughs> minus 40 regular temperature, not even wind chill, right? Yeah. 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 Well, the wind chill would be minus 50s. <clears throat> Uh, but you get long, long days because yes. you're being farther north. So when does it start? When does it start to get farmable? Um, our goal every year is to be in the field April 20th. We probably get in April 20th, six out of 10 years. Okay. We're normally end of April, beginning of May is when we start planting. Your operation, uh, because it's, it's different from one regard. Kelly Garrett, I was interviewing him the other day talking about something. He's got 50 acres of oats. He's doing kind of as an experiment and to get his own seed. I said, are you the only farm south of the of the prairie provinces that's growing oats? He said, probably so. You grow a lot of oats up there. Yes, yes. We grow lots of uh, – the difference between me and Kelly is Kelly's growing his for cover crop seed. I'm growing mine for human consumption. So mine will go into oat milk, go into your Cheerios, go into your granola bars. A lot of it goes down to General Mills or Quaker. Those are the two main companies that, that buy our oats. Yeah. So uh, tell us about uh, acres of, of oats because, you know, it's pretty big, right? Yeah. So we uh, this year we're going a little bit crazy. Normally we grow about 1,000 acres of oats. This year we're growing 2,000 acres of oats because the price is just stupid on it. It's it's double what it normally should be. A couple of years ago, I just for fun was going through some sort of a commodity thing. And I looked up what the price of oats were. And I think it was like $3 for a bushel of oats. And I said, good God, how can you justify growing some for $3 a bushel? And, <laughs> but what, what is the price of oats right now? So we sold our oats for $7.45 Canadian a bushel. Okay. So I'm not quite sure what the conversion is, but you'd be north of six bucks for sure. Sure. And then what's an expected yield on your oat acres? Um, normal conditions, we would budget 150 to 175 bushels an acre. That's that's tremendous. Yeah. This year with the delayed start, we're budgeting 100 and a quarter. Okay. 
late start, you're putting oats aren't like winter wheat. Oats go in the ground when you first can get out there in the field. So are you going out and putting those oats in April 30th? Yes. So we grow spring wheat as well. That's mm-hmm. also for human consumption. Mm-hmm. So we'll put that in first and we'll put that in as soon as the frost is out and we can drive. And as soon as we're done putting our spring wheat in, we're transferring the drills over to oats and we're putting oats in. No till? No, we uh, we are in the Iowa of Western Canada. So we are in a little pocket where we are very heavy black soil mm-hmm. and we are full scale tillage. Okay, so you do full scale tillage. Yeah. You're out there with a moldboard plow and a disc, just like no. we did in 1975? No, no moldboard plow, but disc grippers are becoming a thing here. And uh, we use chisel plows and double discs. Got it. So uh, I, I, you said how many acres of oats this year? 2,000? 2,000. Okay, so that's a lot. That's a lot of oats at 125, yes. 125 bushels per acre. And the good news is, you know, all these other farmers are out here, they they overload their trucks with corn and soybeans. They go over the 80,000 pounds. Oats, you couldn't possibly go over because it only weighs 32 pounds a bushel, right? Yeah, we uh, the key that we have is we can grow heavy oats. So we grow 40-pound bushel oats. So Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you making this up? This is like left-handed nope. screwdrivers. If uh, if we're under thirty six pounds, I'm pissed off. Really? Yeah. Did I say the I date, said thirty two? What, what what was a normal bushel? Was it 36? 34. 34. 34. I said thirty two. Yeah. It's, it's been a while well, since we touched. So there's a difference. An American American bushel oat is thirty two, I believe, and a Canadian is thirty four. Okay. Well, maybe I was right then on the thirty two. And uh, that might be flipped. Don't quote me on that because yeah, I'm not right. used to growing that low a bushel weight. Yeah, I was going to say, you you want 40 bushels. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. All right, so uh, the rest of the operation, you just uh, you got 2,000 acres of oats. What else do you do up there? We, uh, we grow spring wheat for food, and we'll grow some wheat for feed as well. Um, who's, who's the buyer of the spring wheat that goes for human consumption? Is it General Mills also? Um, there is a bunch of mills. We have a couple of flour mills in Manitoba mm-hmm. and we have two of them. And then, um, we'll sell to, uh, grain elevators that will either export it overseas or export it to the States down to Minneapolis where it will get milled there. Yeah. So Adroit would be the company that would buy most of our wheat. In the in general, in, in North America, in general, U.S. and Canada, at least, we are export-oriented agriculture because we are so damn productive. Yeah. We have 330 million people here in the U.S., so we can burn through a lot of what we produce just feeding 330 million people. And, and if you look yeah. around, Americans eat a lot. Uh, you, you produce a lot of stuff, and you only got 40 million people. Yeah. You are even more of an export-oriented agricultural system in Canada because you produce more than 40 million people can eat. And yes. uh, you've got to send stuff overseas. Yeah, we export 85% of what we grow. Meaning in Canada or at, at your in, farm? In, in Western Canada. In Western Canada, yeah. Yep. So um, <clears throat> oats and wheat, where else? What else we do? Uh, we grow some canola. That's those yellow flowers that have pretty pictures, and that's a direct competitor to soybean oil. It's a, fa- it's, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic crop that was invented in Canada by two professors at the Prairie Provinces universities that took yep. rapeseed and then started uh, started refining it and working out the acid content, and it was 
perfect climatologically to grow out there and it satisfied the conversion to vegetable oil because before that we were using lard and whatnot so it's changed the economics of agriculture in the western canada right yeah it's a very clean oil and it's a very efficient seed so 80 percent of the canola seed is oil only 20 percent has to be crushed out for meal which makes it a better conversion than say a soybean oil are you bashing on soybeans? Is this going to be competitive? Is this kind of one? You know what? No. Are we going to come up there and are we going to come up there and take over your country? I I grow lots of soybeans too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you shouldn't. You should leave us leave that to us down here in the Midwest. Um, uh, canola cropping system for somebody that's like you know, some of our friends that are from Alabama. They're saying, yeah. I know about this. When, when do you plant canola? So we plant canola in spring as well. So canola is the last crop we put in the ground because we have these little bugs called flea beetles that will just saw it right down to nothing if you're not careful. So we'll wait until the second week of May or third week of May to put our canola in the ground. All right, we're talking about canola. We talked about oats, talked about wheat. You said now you grow soybeans. So the way things work, you're far enough north that you might get an hour more daylight, honestly, than I do here in, in uh, northern Indiana, right? Yes. So uh, I'm on central time. So last night, the sun went down at 1030 in the evening. Yeah. And so just because of the curvature of the earth, you guys have longer days. So you squeeze yeah. a bit more growing season into a shorter season because you're still cold in April, but you get longer days in the summer. Correct. Um, so it helps you on soybeans. You grow corn also? Yes, we grow corn as well. That's all for feed. And so is it genetically modified? Are you regular GMO yes. corn? Okay. So yeah. you're, you're, you're not doing and no, no specialty stuff there? No. It, all of our corn goes into the pork or the cattle market. Yep. We have one, we have one ethanol plant, but they mostly buy their feed wheat or barley. They don't have a huge market for corn. Does your stuff go east or go west? There's a bunch of cattle in Alberta. I think Alberta is the yep. cattleist uh, state, uh, province up there, right? Yeah. Um, but where, where does your where are the feed yards? Feed yards? Yeah. So in Manitoba, we're actually an importer of corn. Mm -hmm. Lots of corn comes up from the Dakotas, Minnesota, and Iowa. Mm -hmm. um, we are. My grandpa used to always say Manitoba is the Iowa of Western Canada. And I probably mentioned that earlier on, but we have a lot of hogs here. We're hog central. And so there's lots of feed mills that take up a lot of corn for hogs. And the only reason we ship corn west to Alberta is because it's cheaper for the, the mills here to import it from the Midwest and then ship our stuff west. You, you're you're a middleman. Manitoba's the middleman. You're taking stuff. You're taking corn from Minnesota and then and then sending it on sending it on rail. Exactly. Uh, perspectives on Prairie Province farming. Speaking of shipping, there's two big Canadian rail companies, right? Yes. And they were not moving agricultural commodities because somehow it's more profitable for them to move uh, other oil. stuff. Oil. Oil. Um, is there still is there still a rub? Yes. Yeah, no, we're we're always at odds. I shouldn't say at odds, but we're we're always fighting to get agriculture products onto trains and to get space on trains. Um, we call our trains here pipelines because they haul lots of oil 
because our government doesn't like us to have pipelines in the ground for some reason. Yeah, well, we're, we're, we've apparently, uh, we've morphed into that here the last uh, couple of presidents ourselves. Um, what, uh, what's different? I mean, we talked about the weather. You get long, long days, so you squeeze a growing season in and a shorter amount of days yeah. because of longer days, and you have to, which is good. You know, even clear up in North Alberta, I know there's agriculture seven hours into Alberta, and you think, how is that possible? Because, again, they get very long, sunny days. Um, besides the weather and climatological stuff, is there anything that, um, that the average American farm operator would be like, oh, I never thought of that? Our crop insurance system is very different from you guys. So that's the easy picking one. We have to put a crop in the ground. We do not have prevent plant here. Okay. So we have to get a crop seeded to have crop insurance. Um, the other, other big thing is our field sizes. Um, we, a small field for us is 120 acres. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kevin Matthews is down there in uh, Western or North, North Central, Northwestern uh, North Carolina. And he talks about having patches, you know, that are 23 acres and this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, real quickly about that crop insurance. Are you, is it subsidized like it is in the United States where the government will pay for part of or most of the premium? Yes. So they pay for a good chunk of the premium. Yep. Um, I would say that our program isn't as robust as yours. Mm-hmm. You guys have a much better program than we have. Mm-hmm. And I would chalk that up to your farm groups do a much better job of lobbying than ours do up here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So field size. Uh, if there's going to be automated machinery, it's probably going to happen there first, because like you said, you've got these vast tracts, um, whereas in a, in a square, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're flat and square. You irrigate your stuff? No, we do not. I've looked into it in the past, but uh, normally our issue is we have too much water. Mm-hmm. So we don't have that much rainfall, but my ground is heavy. Like, I don't know too many guys. Well, if you know about CECs, cation exchange capacity, my lightest ground is 36 CEC. My heaviest ground is 52 CEC. So I hold lots of water and lots of nitrogen. So I don't need that much rain because I'm not leaching that rain out the bottom. Sure. Interesting. Uh, <clears throat> potatoes are not too far from you. I've worked yep. with potato groups in Dakotas. Have you ever been approached about doing a potato contract? No, my ground is way too heavy. I have a couple of friends that grow potatoes mm-hmm. and they joke around that if I could sell mud that looked like potatoes, they would put their potatoes on my ground. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> the potatoes like sandier, little lighter yeah. stuff. I got it. Yeah. So we have, we're in right at the bottom of the Red River Valley mm-hmm. where we are very heavy. And then we call it an escarpment. So as the land pulls out of the bottom of the valley, it lightens up and we have some sandier soil. So that's where the potatoes are growing. Yeah. But you don't, you don't farm any of that. So no uh, ownership situation, you know, eventually you and I are going to do a recording about business. You're a 31 year old man. You're in business with your parents right now. What's that look like? Uh, Is it, is it different in, in Manitoba than it is here? Or is it still kind of the same thing working with the parents? They own all the assets and you're just the labor. What the heck does this look like? (laughs) Pretty much. Um, I would say, we're very similar to my American friends that are in the farming world. I am very fortunate. Um, 
I'll go on a little bit of a story here. My dad's, so my grandfather on my dad's side, he passed away when my dad was 18. So him and his uncle started farming together when he was 18. And my great uncle passed away when I was 11. So I had a full-time job from 11 on because it was me and my dad. now. So I'm farther ahead than a lot of my friends are just because me and my dad have been farming since I was a preteen. And now I'm reaping some of the benefits of that because I've been able to collect on inflation because I've had ownership since I could. Right when I was 18, I had my first quarter sectional land bought. Um, did, your, did, your, did your parents uh, cut you, start cutting you in on it and saying, listen, kid, we know that, uh, we know that you've been out here doing this since you were little, so uh, here's some ground? Uh, no, we actually went out and bought it. And uh, I qualified for a loan as a young farmer that uh, covered the whole half section. So my dad provided the down payment and we split the land 50-50. I see. And I paid the loan off and he helped me with the loan a little bit on his half too. So, <clears throat> so you own some farm ground up there, uh, yep. but then they own farm ground. How much, yes. uh, how much of your land is not owned by somebody named Anderson? Uh, 50%. So you cash rent or you do shares? We cash rent. Okay. Share rent has never taken off here because we have a lot of variability. Yep. And we can see a swing from a zero or a minus to making 150 bucks an acre year to year. Sure. So uh, your landlords, uh, retired farmers, or are they investors from uh, Toronto? Um, all of them are retired farmers or kids of retired farmers. Mm -hmm. There has been investors that have come in and they leave just as fast as they come for the most part in our area. Every time things get hot, uh, which right now we're obviously in a very accelerated real estate, agricultural real estate market, I make the crack that I'm going to go to auctions and on my name badge, I'm going to put investor from Chicago because every <laughs> time there's this ascension in real estate, then you'll talk to the local farmer gossip. So did you hear what the, the Miller farm sold for? 12 grand an acre. Who bought it? I heard it was some investors from Chicago, which is completely <laughs> all bullshit. They're not investors from Chicago. But anyway, that's kind yeah. of funny to me. Yeah. That's why I threw out investors from Toronto for you. I'm sure. For sure. The, uh, actually, the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund was mm -hmm. up here last boom in the early 10s, like 2011, 12. Yeah. And they were buying land, but everybody found out afterwards that they only bought one quarter instead of half of the province. Yeah, right, right, right. So they bought, they bought, 100, bought 160 acres, and, and the way the farmer talk had it, it, it the whole province was getting bought up by these damn teachers' pension funds. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to, if I want to come up and buy 160 acres uh, that you farm, your average stuff, how much am I paying for it? Uh, well, first of all, you couldn't because you'd have to be a resident of Manitoba to own land. Um, second, all you would be paying about five to seven thousand Canadian an acre. Okay, so uh, as an American, I can't yep. own farm ground that you farm. Yeah, there's ways around it, but we can talk about that off air. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's ways around everything, as I always point out, Riley. Rules were made for people who lack creativity, exactly. Uh, all right, so. Five to seven Canadian, and so I think last I looked, there was about a twenty percent uh, about Canadian dollars, about eighty percent. 
We're not doing so hot right now, so it's about thirty percent right now. Okay, so take seventy percent times uh, times seven grand. That's forty nine hundred dollars. So forty five hundred to five thousand U.S. would get me acres bought where you are. Yes, sounds cheap. Sure, you want to come up here when it's cold. <laughs> sounds cheap, and the reason it's that price is is it because we're limiting demand because we don't let Americans come up and buy it? Or is it because it, it costs what it costs because uh, there's the productivity is what it is? Um, I would say that reflects productivity. That price is actually inflated over productivity. Mm -hmm. Like the land is not making its payments. That would be similar to situations all over the Midwest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, I would say average, you need two acres to pay for one acre here. Yeah. So two right. acres of farm ground to pay for one acre of bought ground. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Well, meaning you're going to put it, if you put down 50%, it'll flow. Yeah. Yeah. If you put down 50%, yeah. it'll flow. And uh, non-ag people don't get that. One of my investor buddies from Chicago actually told me he was interested in team up and buying something. And then he wanted to know <clears throat> if he could do like three to 5% down and use borrowed money. And I said, no. No, you can't use, there's no, there's nobody's going to loan you a 97% loan to value uh, on farmland. No. Uh, you know, you, you've got some interesting stuff up there. The total acres that you operate then, half of which are owned, half of which are not, it's, you've got to spread between five things, canola, oats, wheat, corn, soybeans. Is there anything we missed? Yeah. No, that's the main crops. We dabble in sunflowers for oil peas and sometimes dry beans or edible beans we call them up here yeah but those are more of crop insurance plays or or the price is really good didn't the whole explosion of edible beans and and chickpeas and all that didn't it really change the complexion of farm economics because i know guys in montana that said this has been a boom for us because yeah. we you know we were out here getting 60 bushel wheat or something and 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 now my god we got the, these peas and chickpeas and edible beans it was a really good thing no yes so right where i am we haven't seen the same boom because we are we have more moisture and we're in a little bit different climate but the more arid parts of western canada like southwest saskatchewan and alberta they've seen a huge boom in their ag world because of those foods taking off. Yeah, got it. By the way, speaking of the provinces and the differences, you said that you gotta be a resident, not only of Canada, but of Manitoba. You gotta be a Manitoban to buy farm ground there. That yep. seems to really be limiting stuff. That means, it means you can't even just say, I'm from Saskatchewan and I wanna come over across the border and uh, own a bunch of stuff. There is some gray area with that. Um, you can do it, but you have to have extra, you basically have to say that you're gonna own it for a long period of time. You can't just flip it. That There's there's some rules that way with it. What did we not cover when we're talking about perspectives on Prairie Province farming with you? Because we wanna be this an introduction, but we also wanna talk about some of the unique stuff. Um, what did we not cover about Prairie Province farming that uh, I didn't ask? So we, we touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to unpack it a little bit further, is our frost-free days, we call it. Mm -hmm. So it's our growing season length. Um, we will have our last frost beginning of May, and we will have our first frost 
beginning of October, end of September. So that limits our growing season. Um, I would love to harvest crop grass green like they do in the south and the Midwest. But the reality of that is the frost is going to kill the crop before we get to it most times. So we have to adapt within that confines or that those within those within that fence, I'll call it. We have to operate. So yeah, that's that's kind of the the main challenge we have up here. The truth is you're not really that far off. I'm from northern Indiana and we used to talk about frost free date being like October, uh, I'm sorry, May 7th and then and then uh October 9th or 10th or something. So, I mean, you're not yeah. that far off of what we are. All right. You're going to be doing some trials for extreme ag and uh, I'm excited about that. Tell us what you're going to do and what problem you seek to solve or what, what answer you'd like to discover. Yeah. So um, we have, uh, we have this flood issue and what I noticed afterwards is when the water left my soil smelt like it was rotting. And I was cleaning up some flood debris, and that was the video. And I flipped over a couple logs, and I just saw them covered in earthworms mm -hmm. and earthworm holes. And then my brain started working, and that was right on the shore where the where the crop or the ground came out of the flood water versus what was in the flood water, and all the earthworms just came straight for air. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started thinking about it and. I'm thinking most of that rotten smell is rotting biology yeah. is what I'm smelling. Yeah. And uh, so I want to restore that biology that I lost due to the flood water. In my video, I said my soil was dead. That's not entirely true. That's a very dramatic yeah. way of saying it. Yeah, but we obviously, we obviously, we were, we were underwater long enough that then we don't have oxygenation. And, uh, you know, they taught me in soil judging soil ideally is 50% particle, 25% air, 25% water. Well, you were <laughs> uh, particle and water <laughs> nowhere. And so yeah. you're going to do what? And we're going to talk about it more in a different video, yeah. but you're going to use some products to kickstart. Eventually it would come back. It could take years. Yeah. You're trying to you're trying to hasten the yeah. recovery of that ground. Exactly. So my I'm no expert on this, so I'm learning things as well here. But I am trying to stimulate my biology to reproduce and build back up faster. So I'm going to be applying some Humipack from Ag Explorer, which is a humic acid, which is food for the biology of the soil. Yeah. And I'm hoping that I can speed that process up. All right. So we're going to be talking about that specifically. And is that the only trial you get going for us? Um, I also have some other products from them that I'm going to be putting down. Um, sweet tea is a bit of a compost. I don't know too much about it. Um, Corey, my rep, dropped it off and said, this is going to be awesome for you. Try it out. Okay. So I got to dig into that and figure out what it is. So and then they have some micronutrients I'm putting down as well. And this is all on that flooded field. Are you going to be doing anything on your normal fields that didn't sit like a lake? Yeah. So I'm going to be putting the micronutrients on the fields that I still have, I'd say 80 to 90% yield potential on. Got it. So we're going to be doing stuff on fertility. We're going to do stuff on bringing back, reviving uh, a, a, an almost dead soil field. And we're going to be doing uh, some mid-season, late-season stuff with this other nutrient yep. thing? Okay. Yes. Yeah. And mid-late mid season for you really means what? August. Yeah. It'll be end of July, beginning of August. Yeah. Cool. All right. 
his name is Riley Anderson. He's doing affiliate work for Extreme Ag. You can check out more great stuff that we record for Extreme Ag. You know, we got over 100 of these podcasts. We got videos from the guys that are doing stuff. We got product trials. We got articles of successful farming. Please go and check this stuff out. It don't cost you nothing. If you want to spend a little bit of money, you can become a paying member. You'll get access to our webinars. You'll also get access to the guys where they'll actually take your calls and answer your questions. You can do all this at extremeag.farm. If you want to learn more about Riley Anderson, come and find him here, or you can even look him up. Uh, uh, you can even look him up at his email. I'm sure he'd be happy to help you out. Uh, your email address is uh, Riley at aplusproducers.com. So APLUS producers.com. Look at that, Riley at aplusproducers.com. Uh, his name is Riley Anderson. You'll be hearing more from him. Uh, he's our he's our token Canadian, and I like him. And my name is Damian Mason. Thank you for being here. Till next time, it's Extreme Ice Cutting the Curve. Thanks for listening to another edition of Cutting the Curve. For more information that you can apply to your farm operation, visit extremeag.farm. Are your crops stressed out? Ag Explorer has you covered with a full line of products to help protect your crop from environmental stressors such as cold and wet or heat and drought. Check out agexplorer.com and start protecting your yields and profits.